Thank you, Nathan. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can gather here today, here in person and online this morning, and open your word, God. Thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. Fill us with expectation, God, about what you want us to hear and and take away with us today. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see you, Jesus. Amen. So great to be here. Um, I was trying to find a great story out of the Brisbane Heat victory to share with you today. Now that you all know, I watch cricket. Um, But I couldn't really come up with anything, although the wind was very good. Are there cricket fans out here today? I know that you're a quiet bunch and you don't like to admit that to people, so we'll just leave it as that. Um, I was trying to work out if there was some kind of illustration from the tennis victory for the sinner, maybe. Um, But I couldn't quite work out how to weave that in either into Ecclesiastes, which we are looking at today. But I did find... A picture of some art, which is really interesting. I remember coming across this some time ago, and I trolled the internet to find it again. There's a guy called, um, an artist, sculpture artist called Michael Murphy, who does this perceptual art. And they're 3D perceptual sculptures that are actually made up of all different bits. I think we've got a little video of one example on the screen. Some of it is very political if you go searching for this. But anyway, this one's pretty safe. Can you see front on, it looks like an eye, but actually as you turn, it's made up of all these different little parts that actually make no sense at all unless you're looking at it from the right perspective. So fascinating and so interesting. And it was this that kind of reminded me of where we sit in Ecclesiastes. The search of this teacher looking for meaning in all the parts of life. You know, I have to tell you, if you were feeling like you forgot that we were in Ecclesiastes and then you just heard me say it and you just went, oh, why did I come to church today? Um, You will be blessed to know that the great, famous evangelist, revivalist of the 18th century once preached his way through Ecclesiastes and he said this about the book, Never before had I so clear a sight either of its meaning or beauties. I pray that for you today. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected together, all tending to prove the grand truth that, and I'm going to leave that there. You are going to have to wait till the end of the sermon to find out the grand truth that John Wesley found in Ecclesiastes today. Because this is kind of like the journey of Ecclesiastes that the teacher takes us on. It is actually not a story that we learn from. It's a style of writing that is more like a philosophy seminar. It's meant to challenge you to think. It poses questions and scenarios that are meant to take you on a journey to look deeply at life as you dig into these pages to find truth for yourself. The teacher poses as a king. We don't actually know for sure if the writer was King Solomon, 
it was quite common for people to kind of write autobiographies of famous people. And that might be the genre that we're looking at here. But the life that he describes of this king definitely looks like King Solomon's life. A king who was admired by those near and far. I mean, who wouldn't be jealous of that guy? He had it all. But the teacher wants us to take a deeper look at a life that has it all. A king might look like he has it all, but does he really? The teacher encourages us to um, not just sit comfortably in our assumptions here. He dares us to take on this challenge to look at the meaning of life, a deeper meaning, words that will have meaning for you today. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to look at the rich and famous or even the person next to us and think they are so lucky. I would love to have their life. Do you ever think that? But underneath the veneer of what we see, what is really going on? To recap on last week, the teacher comes onto the stage with this big statement, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And those of you who are regretting coming for the Ecclesiastes sermon, just have your little affirmation right there. He's, he's doing that to grab our attention. He is daring us to go with him on a quest to explore the meaning of life. What is our purpose for being here? Where is our value? If you had the means and opportunity to search out meaning with endless resources, where would that journey take you? What would you find at the end of that journey? The context here is really important. The quest for meaning is taking place under the sun. God is actually kept out of the picture on this quest. This is a journey of finding meaning in life without God in it. And I feel like this is so relevant to the culture that we're living in today. It's the John Lennon view of life. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easier if you try. Our society has a preoccupation, doesn't it, with finding satisfaction and fulfillment are searching for the answers to life's questions and problems, but there is no place for God in that picture. And then there's the other phrase, which is repeated 38 times in this book. Repetition, repeated for emphasis. A chasing after the wind, meaningless. The Hebrew word habel, Andrew talked about it last week, representing this enigma or mystery of life, like a wind or smoke or a breath that is right there in front of you, but you cannot grasp it or hold on to it. Actually, the word Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of that Hebrew word habel. So meaningless or chasing after the wind would be the title of this book. In the first chapter, the teacher pursues the meaning of life under the sun, and he starts by seeking knowledge and wisdom, but he comes up disappointed. We heard that last week. If there are no answers to the questions in life, if study and science can't tell me why I'm here and what I'm here for, then it stands to reason that the here and now is all we have. 
And that is where the teacher takes us in chapter two. Read along with me. I said to myself, this is the teacher speaking, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was... So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. What a decadent way to pursue the meaning of life. I I reckon that if you ask most people on the street, if you could live anywhere you wanted with the means of farm-to-table food right at your back door, with all the people you need to serve your every need, with more money than you can use, with the best entertainment at your fingertips, your choice of the finest wine, and you could sleep with whomever, whenever you wanted, most people would agree that this is the dream. This is happiness. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand if you'd agree with them this morning, okay? But surely that would be a pretty amazing life. Isn't that what the $200 million Powerball is all about? Do you know almost half of Australians buy a ticket in the Powerball? The dream life of pleasure. Wouldn't that be fulfilling? Wouldn't that be satisfying? But the teacher presses back against our dream life. Your attempts at getting pleasure and stuff to make you feel worthwhile might feel okay in the moment, but in the long run, this too will leave you empty. We live in a society that has turned to pleasure for meaning. Tim Keller says, when you don't have anything bigger than yourself to live for, when you don't know what truth is, When you have no cause worth dying for, then there is nothing bigger than you. Did you hear the teacher in that passage? I had everything a man could desire. I became greater than everyone else. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. 
Is there anyone here this morning who can make those claims? The language reminds me of the gods of Greek mythology. There's no moral code or consideration here. Just that what is pleasurable is good. I wonder, even in some of the language used around planting and gardens and all kinds of fruit trees, don't you think that echoes some of the Genesis creation account? In the absence of God in life under the sun, there is such a temptation for man to become God. Hedonism is the word we use for the pursuit of pleasure as the key meaning in life. It's a value system that says the highest and only good that there is, is my enjoyment of the moment. This pursuit of pleasure is a part of our culture more than you may have realized. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, when everyone was kind of starting to head back to work after Christmas, I was still on holidays, Um, I had the breakfast show on in the morning. And they were going to an ad break, but said, stay tuned after the break. We're going to share some tips with you about how to survive the struggle of going back to work. Um, And I thought, oh, I might need to listen to this. No offense to those sitting in the front row. But you know, after holidays, heading back to work can be a struggle. We've all been there. Um, And so I'm waiting there for these hot tips on how to face the struggle of going back to work. And do you know what they said? The best tip that they could give? Plan your next holiday. (laughs) And don't forget there's a long weekend not far away. That was it. No remedy for setting goals or tips on how to get through your emails or getting along with your co-workers. Just endure. The dream of your next holiday will come eventually. Wow. And that's the problem with pleasure, isn't it? It's so short-lived. It feels okay in the moment or when it's new and interesting, fashionable and shiny. But then we get bored. We are dissatisfied. Our brain needs more stimulation to feel the same buzz or satisfaction. We need to move on to the next goal, the next project, the next acquisition, the next partner the next holiday, the next drug of choice, the next something new to keep us feeding our wants and desires. The thing is, most of us will never live to know what it's like to have it all. We'll never get to the end of our next thing list. But the teacher here does. He's tried it all. He's experienced it all. He's had it all. And rather than elation and enlightenment, there again he is faced with dissatisfaction. Take it from the teacher today. Pleasure is not the answer you are looking for. In describing the king's life, the teacher is pushing out the boundaries of our imagination to the extreme of pleasure-seeking. And says, you will never believe this, but even a life like that is a chasing after the wind. The teacher is grappling with the idea that what is temporary is not going to satisfy. There's something in our beings that longs for transcendence. We all want to be something. We all want to be someone. 
We are chasing enduring value. We all want to be part of something that outlasts us. But what is it? The teacher has another realization as he goes on. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I decided to compare wisdom and foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king? I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they're going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said this to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is all so... For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is like the chasing the wind. The teacher is faced with the confronting reality that everyone meets the same end. Death is this perplexing conundrum throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher throws death in our face and says, well, what is your answer to that? For most of us, we don't like to even think about it, do we? Or we placate ourselves by saying it's just a natural part of life. But the writer is disturbed by death, and rightly so. How can death be the end reward of life? How can death be the same outcome no matter how you live your life? Under the sun, death is treated as an intellectual problem, not a spiritual one. We live in a culture that says your origin is insignificant. You are only here by chance. Your destiny is insignificant because there isn't actually nothing at the end of this life. So if that is really true, if life under the sun is all there is, then how we actually live doesn't really matter at all. It doesn't make a bit of difference. It's inconsequential. Are you feeling the tension of life under the sun? The teacher goes on. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How? So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. They must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all the teacher is now questioning whether there is any value in work. So much of our identity and purpose is wrapped up in the work that we do. I mean, if you meet someone and find out their name, chances are the next question you ask is, well, what do you do? Maybe the teacher didn't have to suffer a bad boss or a commute in heavy traffic or the pressures of meeting impossible KPIs or 
the frustrations of clients and customers and co-workers. But he knew the suffering of the curse of work. And it was another chasing after the wind. He hated it. Verse 22 is so profound in that passage. So what do people get for all their hard work and anxious striving under the sun? What do they get? What would you answer to that question? After the teacher has examined it all, what is left? It is all meaningless. The effect of sin is that God's image bearers, humans he created, forfeit their right to exist and their reason for existence. The curse of sin meant death and cutting off from life. The teacher is struggling to make sense of life under this curse. In the desperate search for truth, everything is meaningless. It is no wonder there's so much anxiety and depression all around us. The outcome of the search for life under the sun ends with this. If you come from nothing and you're going to nothing, well, you need to have courage to admit that your life is nothing. The teacher is pushing us to the edges of reason and waiting for us to go, whoa, hold on a minute. That can't be right. That can't be all there is. That can't be the end of our search for truth. How can life be nothing when there are moments of joy that touch something deep inside me, when I'm moved in my spirit and soul? How can life be nothing when the decisions and actions I take have consequences and implications beyond just me? How can life be nothing when there are people in my life that make it full of purpose and meaning? How can life be nothing when you look at love? How can life be nothing when there is something inside me that longs for things to be whole and right and better? Where does all that come from? And the teacher has us in the palm of his hand, right where he wants us to be. Under the sun, we cannot account for those things. There has to be something more to life than what is under the sun. The teacher leads us to the possibility of a different perspective. Like that perceptual art it looks like it might just be a, a random jumble of objects. But stand in a different spot. Take a different view of this. And at the end of this chapter, the teacher writes, So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy 
to those who please him. God shows up in this philosophical seminar, in the chasing after the wind. If all the pleasures under the sun cannot satisfy your soul, then the reason is that we need to look outside of what's beyond what's under the sun. If we're able to find lasting satisfaction in earthly pleasures, then we would never recognize our need of God. The despair of life under the sun without God actually drives us to the truth that God must be there. And there is the beauty of this book. All of a sudden, God comes into the picture and there is satisfaction. There is pleasure. There is wisdom and joy in life. God makes the difference. The teacher lifts his eyes to a world above the sun and there is God extending his hand of grace. God didn't leave us to suffer a life stuck in that curse of sin. God makes room in his unfolding plan for the reversal of that curse, the renewal of life, for the king of heaven to enter earth, for a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem, for an empty tomb, for the church, for the coming kingdom, and ultimately for paradise regained, where death will be forever banished, and life in all its fullness restored. Nothing matters but the kingdom, but because of the kingdom, everything matters. Our satisfaction is met in the risen Christ who offers himself as the source of life and the source of all satisfaction. The answer to our every longing and question is Jesus. Life doesn't, seem, life doesn't make sense without him. And when we turn to Jesus, something very surprising happens. The pleasures that once failed to satisfy now satisfy. The simplest of things the teacher writes about here, food and drink, become a joy. Jesus makes that difference. The teacher realizes that there's a big difference in striving to grasp after something and realizing that it is a gift for our pleasure to receive in the grace that Jesus extends to us. Paul confirms this message of Ecclesiastes when he says in Philippians 3.8, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ. Ecclesiastes points to the hope that Jesus steps into our under the sun. He offers his life. Jesus is the answer to our search for life. And it is in discovering the love of Jesus that the rest of life falls into right perspective. Only when we know God, only when we see life as a gift of his grace, will we know 
the meaning that we've been instinctively created to know. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You did not come from nothing. You were created by a God in heaven who made you and loves you. He knows you. He sees you. Death is not the nothing end. Jesus conquered death and he rose to life and he extends that life to us for eternity. We are not going nowhere. There is a new heaven and a new earth coming. A day when God's kingdom will be established and everything will be made right. We are created for eternity. And that absolutely means your life here matters. Ephesians 2 says, you are God's masterpiece. He has a plan and purpose for your life. Good things for you to do right here. We get to partner with God in his work in the world. And our life is significant. Even the mundane things become meaningful. We get to share his light and his love wherever we go. We get to point other people to this beautiful truth that Jesus is the one who meets the desires of our heart and satisfies the deep longings of our soul. The stark contrast to life without God and life with God is what Ecclesiastes is pointing to here. And I think the word contentment sums it up. A peace that is restored to us in God. Paul describes this contentment with Christ like this. In Philippians 4, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or a little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The mystery and enigma of chasing after the wind is resolved when our eyes and heart are open to Jesus. What are you chasing after today? Is it stuff? Is it pleasure? Is it a legacy to leave when you're gone? Is it meaning through your work? Or are you chasing after Jesus? A few years ago now, I remember going to two funerals close together and they were just such a stark contrast to one another. The first was a guy who had achieved a lot in life, lived in countries overseas, had nice houses, amazing experiences. He was a successful businessman and lived the high life. What does any of that mean when you've taken your last breath on earth? There was not a mention of God in the service and the final song at this funeral was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. It was almost jarring to my soul. Not long after that, I attended the funeral of a mom of someone who comes here, a beautiful, quiet, humble lady who loved Jesus all her life. She didn't have degrees. She didn't travel overseas. She lived in the same house for most of her life. 
It was a simple life, but rich in pleasure. Simple pleasure. She loved her family. She loved Jesus. She served in her church. She loved people well. She was famous, well-known amongst her family and friends for her tomato sandwiches, which apparently tasted amazing because they were made with such love. I was so impacted by that service. What really matters in life? The hymns sung at that service were about a saviour. A saviour who gives us the sure and certain hope of life for eternity with him. I'm not the judge of life. Thankfully, that's God's job and not ours. But at the end of life, Jesus is all that matters. What are you chasing after today? What are you grasping hold of? To finish John Wesley's quote, this exquisite book full of meanings and beauty, full of meaning and beauties, tends to provide the grand truth that there is no happiness outside of God. This is the truth that draws us to Jesus. This is the truth that is our hope for this life and the next. Allow your search for meaning to take you there and find a saviour who can satisfy your soul. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all the honour and glory as we grasp the fullness again of who you are and what you've done for us, God. Thank you for being our saviour. Thank you that you satisfy us. Thank you for life in you. And Lord, for those who are still on the journey of discovering that, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak truth to hearts today. For others of us, God, who may have just kind of got a bit off track, Lord, centre us again in this truth that you are everything. God, teach us how to to be a people where our single focus is you, your way, your truth, your life. And may we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.